Hi, and welcome to the interview with The Next Platform. I'm Nicole Hemsoth, co-founder and co-editor, and your host for today's episode. Our focus for today will be on something a little different than usual. We'll be talking about geospatial, or GIS, applications and how those have evolved to include deep learning. To begin, I'll let the researchers that are here to talk about this introduce themselves. Uh, Sudeep, let's start with you. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Sudeep Sarkar. I'm a professor of computer science and engineering uh, here at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Um, I am uh, our computer vision researcher or image analysis researcher for engaged in this kind of work for last 25 to 30 years. Um, I have done lots of different works uh, related to images and videos in general. And I'll let uh, Mauricio introduce himself. Uh, hello everyone, my name is Mauricio Pamplona. I'm currently a postdoctoral scholar at University of South Florida, but I'm also a professor at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil. And I also work uh, with computer vision and machine learning uh, for the last 10 years. And although my expertise is mostly on biometrics, I started working recently with geoprocessing uh, in satellite images, and that's why I started working uh, in the FMO challenge. That is the, the topic, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, you both have interesting backgrounds, and Sudeep, that's a very long career in computer vision. You, you, you've seen quite a bit come and go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, just just help for our readers who aren't and listeners who aren't familiar with GIS, um, geospatial information systems. Give us a sense of, of the evolution of this space from an analytics perspective. So, you know, what are some of the big achievements, and how do you measure performance and success, and and also what are some of the bottlenecks that you guys face, whether they're they're uh, hardware focused or uh, platform software focused. Yeah. So let me start off with a very brief history of GIS, right? So there, there is a field called photogrammetry uh, that has been in existence for a long, long time. Um, it started from uh, geo, geosciences where people were measuring things on Earth. Uh, then when the first satellites went up, we started getting images and then the interest uh, cropped up in trying to measure things from space. Um, then, it, So the field of photogrammetry started with the first satellites and interest in images and, and, and things of on the Earth from space um, started around that time. Um, so initial interest was mostly in, in geometric terms, trying to measure heights of things, trying to measure how land is eroding and, and so on. Um, then as the next uh, satellite started going up, they were more, carried more higher resolution image, uh, cameras and people started looking at uh, content of these images. Can I um, uh, classify different land as being you know, being cultivated? What kind of crops are being cultivated? Where are the roads and so on? And then people who make maps uh, started getting interested in this kind of data. And soon there was an explosion of more higher uh, fidelity cameras. There were also cameras doing multi-spectral imaging that started going up in the sky that allowed you to capture um, pixels at a very high resolution, but not only capture just the color of that pixel, but also to capture um, high, uh, the measurements at different spectral uh, uh, densities right, or at different wavelengths. 
Um, so what started happening is that we were soon flooded with lots of data to look at, but not uh, enough people to actually go through them. And at that time, the field of computer vision or automated image analysis was starting uh, up in terms of uh, in the academic community, uh, partly from AI, uh, sort of um, uh, as an offshoot of AI research, I would say. Um, so people in, in computer vision started looking at these images, trying to see, well, can I classify um, these kind of images into roads and, and buildings? And can I build maps over time and look at how things are changing from these images? Can I design computer algorithms to do that uh, automatically? Or if not automatically, maybe semi-automatically. Um, so that was the, probably around the 1990s. And then what happened is that uh, we started having satellites from um, not only governmental agencies from different countries. You had private satellites going up. Um, uh, Google happened after uh, recently, right? So then you had great interest in map making. So now there was a data deluge in terms of satellite data that's out there. The satellite data of the same place at multiple time instants that need to be looked at. So there was clearly now an uh, interest in automated algorithms that will go through this enormous amount of data and, and find things in there. Um, so that's sort of the brief history. Um, so right now the bottleneck is the data uh, that's coming in in GIS. Mm -hmm. It's 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 obviously you know ever higher resolution too mm -hmm. that you both need from the cameras and need out of out of the analysis that you do, right? There's kind of two levels of, of resolution requirement, right? Yes. So there's the, uh, the pixel level resolution, which is like how much land cover does one pixel in the image cover. And also for each pixel, what are the measurements at different wavelengths, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, and those are getting finer and finer. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, you know, in covering, uh, as we have for so many years, HPC applications, we don't hear a lot about geospatial. It sounds like it has quite a bit more in common with climate simulation and some of these other areas where resolution also matters, um, where the data deluge is, is somewhat similar. What kinds of systems do GIS applications tend to need? Are these the big supercomputers that, that often have uh, workloads running? Or are there other methods and ways of getting the results that you need? Yeah, so GIS applications, um, there's of course uh, defense-related GIS applications that are classified and they have their own systems doing it. Uh, most of the uh, commercial GIS that you see are like in places like Google and Amazon, there's great interest in, in, in doing uh, maps, automated maps uh, that gets constantly updated based on, on satellite images. Um, and they have their own computing farms, basically, running these applications. Um, so that's, I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm not aware of, like, supercomputers running GIS applications, mm -hmm. but I'm sure, sure people are working on those stuff, too. So, so you and Mauricio, I know, have done some work on uh, using deep learning uh, mm -hmm. as, as the sort of next level analytics approach for land classification, and, and you've uh, use convolutional neural nets using an approach you call Hydra. And we'll, we'll have a link to that paper too for those who are interested. 
talk to us about why this is interesting from an analytics perspective. How does this represent what's next for for GIS analysis? This new cap or new-ish, I should say, it's not mm. really new mm. capability of uh, convolu convolutional neural nets. Yeah. So uh, the first generation of automated algorithms that we had designed, and I had designed some of them in the past, uh, like trying to extract roads uh, from from images and so on were basically what I would call using algorithms that were handcrafted in the sense that we used a lot of domain knowledge and prior knowledge uh, about shapes of roads. We knew that roads are parallel, so let's look for parallel things in the image that we can extract roads from. These parallel strips would be connected to form roads and, and so on. So those algorithms, what I would say, were um, the sequence of involved a sequence of steps that were um, put together by experts and, and chained together by experts to solve that particular problem. They were not generalizable um, to other things. So for example, I could not take an algorithm that did road and use it to detect rivers, for example, mm, sure, although sure. they have similar things. So you had all these different kinds of algorithms that were out there that would, could process image, but they are not uh, generalizable to new uh, categories and domains. The deep learning algorithms or the approaches that uh, came uh, in the past five or six years offered us that ability to generalize across categories, right, and, and to able to handle large number of categories to be able to design things in a more um, um, machine learned manner, right? You didn't have to handcraft all the steps. So uh, that's partly uh, why we started looking at deep learning and said, hey, can we take this deep learning approaches and uh, try to categorize um, different things in the, in the image? Um, things like buildings, like a building looks very different in different um, types of uh, places, like building in, 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 uh, in city, New York City, and is different from buildings in, in Tampa, although they are both cities. So instead of designing very specific building detectors, uh, can a deep learner learn the building class by giving it a lot of images? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does a typical training set look like then for this kind of, kind of work? I mean, I would imagine it's massive. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I will I'll let Mauricio tell about the numbers. Um, Mauricio, can you fill in the numbers uh, in terms of the training set sizes? Yeah, sure. Like for the competition that we participated, we had a problem with 62 different types of classes. Like we could, we had to detect uh, airports, uh, roads, or uh, buildings. And for this specific problem, we had a database with nearly 500,000 images. You always need a lot of images for deep learning because uh, it learns more with data. Usually, the old algorithms they work handcrafted, as Dr. Sharkar said, so uh, they had the expert to fine-tune the, the results. In, in the deep learning thing, we, we rely on data, so if we need better res to, to get better results, we need to get more data, and that's why we have like such a huge data set. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and in terms of training too, you know, what what platform do you guys use for training? So this, this is obviously a big data set, um, both of you being computer vision, vision researchers are familiar obviously with GPUs and, and you know you get kind of big speed ups there for deep learning. So did you have to have separate systems to do this efficiently or, or was it 
less about compute efficiency and more about results, however you got them. Yes, since it was a competition, we wanted to try many different things. So what we used was a cluster with 12 uh, GPU nodes. Uh, each node had uh, eight GPUs on it. So uh, this is the only way to get like many different uh, classifiers and test them and see which ones work better with the data. Uh, so yeah, definitely we need uh, many uh, parallel processing in order to achieve good results for this problem. Mm -hmm. And what GPUs, by the way, did you use? We were using uh, Titan Axis, like actually yeah. the GPUs vary according to the node, but mostly they were u we were using NVIDIA Titan X in half of them, and the other ones are, were probably GTX uh, 1080. You know, NVIDIA will not like to hear that because uh, apparently those are not good for training. You have to buy the high-end GPUs to train on, <laughs> don't you know? <laughs> Actually, like uh, the the high wind, uh, they they work well as a, as a how can I say a, a single uh, piece. Like you can buy it and it's going to do everything for you. Sure. You can buy. It's going to be cheaper if you buy smaller cards, uh, and you can get basically the same speed doing that. Right. Uh, very good. So, did you move all this to a separate system then for inference, or uh, try to run everything on the same machine that you built? Oh, yeah, the inferencing is, is, is taught like to run fast. So in our case, we can run the inference in a laptop. Of course, it's not going uh, it's fast uh, according to the restrictions of the competition. So we had one day to classify 100,000 images approximately. So one day uh, with our system is you can you can get the results in a single in a laptop with a single uh, GPU. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. So, so let's talk higher level here and move this out for a second. Um, you know, when working with a deep learning framework, how, how complicated is it compared to other approaches that you've had? We, we know obviously the benefits are, are there of using convolutional, convolutional neural nets, but um, you know, I would think it might be easier than some other areas because it's all image-based, right? But what are some of the framework-related challenges with uh, applying deep learning to a, a big data set like this? Yeah, so let me take that, Mauricio. Um, so, and then I'll, I'll hand off to you for the details. So overall, basically, if you look at any deep learning algorithm, um, one of the issues is the number of parameters that you have, right? So if you look at a deep learning networks that lots of different uh, weights that have to be estimated, and your training data is not as large. So the question then becomes is how do you constrain these learners so that it does not overtrain and go to a local minimum. So a lot of the uh, effort that goes into deep, designing deep learning algorithm has to do with this aspect. So for us, the way we did it was we said, well, let's start off with a deep learning network that does cl image classification. So we took an off-the-shelf um, deep learning um, network from ImageNet and then we took that and started training on these particular data units. So you have a good starting point, now you want to fine tune it. But the problem is with just one fine tuning is that you end up with one network that latches very well to the data you train on, but then doesn't generalize well to other data sets. So the, the framework that we moved on was to look at not just one network, maybe look at, let's look at a a bunch of networks, each of them trying to classify. Some of them are good in this subject uh, category, some of them are good in that 
category and then combine these sort of network experts into one classification. So that was the overall strategy that worked very well in this domain. Does yeah, that, that make sense? That, yes, it does. That, that sounds pretty complicated. So you so you have options, right? You have, uh, especially if you're working with images, CAFE and TensorFlow and, mm. and some of these others. So what, what did you learn about those different frameworks for this particular data set? Yeah, so Mauricio, the, can you uh, share with us uh, on their experience with uh, with uh, ImageNet and, and the other? Okay. Uh, yeah, like we, we today we have like many different libraries and SDKs that you can use to develop uh, uh, CNN-based uh, classifiers. Uh, probably the most famous are Cafe, as you mentioned, uh, TensorFlow, but uh, we have other options also also that give us uh, some models that are ready and provide us a, a better starting point for our models. In our case, we use Keras, which is a, let's say it's a high level layer over TensorFlow. And with, with Keras, we were able to use ImageNet, which is a, which is a very famous database uh, for image classification as, as, as the starting point. So even that the domain of the problem was completely different, we could use the classifiers that were ready as a starting point for our training process. So we always had like a faster convergence for, to our models and we could get like better classifiers. Of course, Hydra is a, is a multi-head algorithm. So we train uh, many different CNNs and try to combine uh, a small set of, of them to get better results. Uh, and we had to test different parameters in the end, like not only in, in terms of the network architecture, but also how to increase our that's that data set. Even that we have half of a million images, uh, you, you can always get better results if you increase the size of the data set. So we do some something that we call data augmentation, where we kind of change the way the images are so that we can get our algorithm more robust to variations that we don't have in the database. And Satellite images have like some pro properties that are very different from other classification problems. For instance, the orientation is not that important. When you see a building from from the sky, like doesn't matter if you are looking at like with the north going up or the north going down, it's going to look like a building. So this kind of thing uh, helped us to increase the size of the data set, the, 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 the data set and get better classifiers as well. It's, it's very hard to communicate how complex it is what you've done. I do encourage our readers to and listeners to look at your, your paper. Uh, one thing I didn't uh, walk away with understanding is, is whether or not Hydra, at least as, as a, a broader approach, is applicable in other areas. I mean, can you take what you've done here and apply this possibly to other areas like weather, as, as I mentioned earlier, as being somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat similar, um, and, and that's be image-based or is this very specific to GIS? Yes, yeah, so this is uh, a feature work that we are we are investigating. So the idea of um, combination of experts is there in machine learning. Uh, this idea uh, has been tried with other kinds of machine learning algorithms like decision trees and, and so on. Uh, in, in the context of deep learning networks people also talk about a mixture of experts. So that idea of combining mixture of experts, I think, is generalizable. The way we 
design these exports I think is unique that's the Hydra aspect of the algorithm that we have just tried it on so far we have data to show only on GIS applications but right now we are working on other domains so we cannot convincingly say that it will work but mm -hmm. we feel it will so. yeah it's kind of the wild west right now everyone's trying to see what works and how to yeah. to take knowledge and apply it elsewhere so uh, just in our last 60 seconds or so here um, uh, you can fight over who takes this this broad question here but um, how revolutionary is this uh, addition to your to your tool set in GIS uh, being able to use deep learning is, is it something that completely upends uh, how you've done things or is it just still kind of too early to say well so uh, this is this uh, I don't know if you've been following the challenge challenge was put uh, forward by IARPA um, and clearly they have uh, uh, a need for automated classification of things um, and the so there is uh, there is a workshop that that will happen in the middle of March in Washington, and we'll be attending there. Um, there will be uh, groups presenting performance on these data sets. So we will have a better feel for the state of the art there uh, in terms of w what next for these kind of applications. But clearly, there is a need for these applications. Uh, it is from right now being driven by the government. Um, there's lots of images coming in and uh, the current uh, algorithms that are out there are not sufficient. The new class of algorithms, deep learning algorithms, have clearly beaten the existing ones. That's, that is clear so far. Mm -hmm. But whether the current performance is sufficient, uh, I don't know. Right. Mauricio, do you want to add to that before we go? No, no, actually he said everything like, yeah, all the algorithms that we had in the past cannot, can definitely not beat deep learning. Maybe some combination in the future can get better results, but that's it. Well, thanks to both of you for explaining how this all fits in, in GIS, which is again something a little bit outside of our general purview, so it's really interesting. So thanks again for joining today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.